0: Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. I am not going to do justice to just how thrilled and excited I am to introduce my next guest. Because if you or someone you know and love is struggling... With some kind of mental illness, whether that's depression or bipolar disorder or oppositional defiance, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and on and on, then get ready for my next guest to rock your world. And I mean it. This is probably going to be one of the most important episodes of T4C that you've listened to. And I have no doubt that it'll become the gift that keeps on giving in your life. So please do share it out with your friends and your family and your colleagues. But before I introduce you to nine-time New York Times best-selling author and double board-certified psychiatrist, Dr. Daniel Amen, I want to make sure you've signed up to get a free copy of the Just Brew It ebook with invaluable career advice from some of the rock star professionals who've been guests on the show, including Guy Raz, NPR journalist and host of the top rated podcast, How I Built This, and Dr. Janet Yellen, the former chairwoman of the Federal Reserve Bank. And it is super easy to do, my friends. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website, at time the number 4 coffee.org and you'll see the sign up box right there on the homepage now my java lovers please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage cuz it's time for another caffeinated career conversation and my guest is Dr. Daniel Amen one of the world's leading psychiatrists and brain health experts he's authored or co-authored 80 professional articles and more than 40 books, including New York Times mega bestseller, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. Dr. Amon pioneered the use of nuclear brain scans back in the late 1980s as a diagnostic tool to better treat his patients. And we're going to be talking about all of this, including his newest book, which is available online right now, entitled... The End of Mental Illness, How Neuroscience is Transforming Psychiatry and Helping Prevent or Reverse Mood and Anxiety Disorders, ADHD Addictions, PTSD, Psychosis, Personality Disorders, and more. Dr. Eamon, welcome to Time for Coffee. I have to ask you, are you caffeinated and ready to go? Well,
1: I'll go with ready to go."
0: Oh gosh, So you never do you <laughs> never drink coffee or caffeinated beverages? Not much.
1: I actually start every day by making my wife a decaffeinated cappuccino. It's just the best. It's like dessert in the morning. But I find that if I get enough sleep that caffeine doesn't really help. And it's got enough negative side effects. I try to avoid it as much as I can.
0: Okay. Fair enough. I'm still thrilled to have you on the show, even if you (laughs) don't drink coffee. (laughs) So one of many things that jumped out at me when I read your wonderful book, and I thought this might be a good place to start, is that you say only 12% of the American public is metabolically healthy. And that might be a strange thing, our audience may be thinking, for a psychiatrist to care about. But you've said, as a result of that, no wonder there's a huge incidence of mental illness. So the
1: next pandemic, uh, I've thought a lot about the pandemic that we're in, is going to be a mental health pandemic. The anxiety, depression, depression, fear, OCV, PTSD addictions are going to skyrocket. And, you know, I've not heard much talk about why the United States is 4% of the world's population, but has 34% of the world's COVID-19 cases with a mortality that should not make us proud. And it's like, why is that? And why is no one talking about it? Well, it's because as a society, we are unhealthy. When 72% of the population is overweight, 42.4% of Americans are obese, 50% of Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic. We know both diabetes and obesity are risk factors for mortality from COVID-19. It's like, no wonder. And people don't, I hate the term mental illness. And people go, oh, why'd you call the book The End of Mental Illness? Because I hate the term mental illness because not only is it shaming, is it stigmatizing, it's wrong because these are brain health issues that steal your mind. Get your brain right and your mind will follow because the brain creates the mind and if the brain's not healthy, your mind, will never be healthy. And so how do you get your brain right? You get the rest of your body right. So caring about, you know, 88% of us are metabolically unhealthy. It explains the epidemic rise of anxiety, depression, and addictions uh, that's happening in our society day to day.
0: You began as a psychiatrist at a time when, and to this day, when diagnostics is done by talking to the patient. What made you think that's not enough?
1: So before I went to medical school, I was a young soldier in the army and I was an infantry medic where my love of medicine was born. But about a year into it, I realized I really didn't like being shot at. It just sort of wasn't my thing. So I got myself retrained as an x-ray technician and developed a passion for imaging. What our professors used to say, how do you know unless you look? And when I fell in love with psychiatry because someone I loved tried to kill herself, and when I took her to see a wonderful psychiatrist, I came to realize if he helped her, which he did, it wouldn't just help her would ultimately help her children and even her grandchildren, is they would be shaped by someone who was happier and more stable. So I fell in love with psychiatry because I realized it could change generations of people. But I fell in love with the only medical specialty that virtually never looks at the organ it treats. And given my imaging background, I'm like, okay, that's dumb and that's gonna change. And even back in the early 80s, when I was doing my residency, at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center, everybody was talking about imaging is the future. And when I started to look at the brain, first with a study called quantitative EEG, and then later with SPECT, which is a nuclear medicine study that looks at blood flow and activity, I was so excited, I'm still excited, like a little kid (laughs) that has this just amazing tool to give me more information to help my patients. And I have loved it virtually every day since.
0: And so what is it that you've been able to learn from looking at, is it 170,000 brain images now that you have?
1: So many things that how we name things is wrong. That depression is a cluster of symptoms that have many different causes and now you can go to the family doctor you can go to your local psychiatrist you get six out of these nine criteria they say oh you have depression and they start everybody on an ssri selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor like prozac or paxil or lexapro or celexa and in large-scale studies they actually work no better than placebo Now, I know for the right person, those medications can save people's lives, but for the wrong person, it can actually make them want to take their life. And so, assuming that depression is one thing, when the imaging work we do has taught us, it's seven, 10, maybe 20 different things that we need to tailor treatment to an individual's brain, not a cluster of symptoms. Andrea, if you just think about it, if you have chest pain, nobody gives you the diagnosis of chest pain. They would go, well, that would be dumb because it doesn't tell you what's causing it or what to do for it because you don't want to assume everybody that has chest pain has coronary artery disease. You can get chest pain from, I lost my father recently, so you can get chest pain from grief. You can get chest pain from gas. You can get chest pain from an infection like pneumonia. I mean, there's just like a zillion causes of it. Don't you want to know the cause so you can properly target the treatment? But that's not what happens in psychiatrists. We go, oh, you have this cluster of symptoms, so you have an anxiety disorder, you have depression, you have ADHD, or you have this one illness that explains it perfectly. In the DSM-5, that's a diagnostic and statistical manual from the American Psychiatric Association, there's actually a category called intermittent explosive disorder. Okay, so you have temper problems, and they give you a diagnosis that's basically the same name as your symptom, intermittent explosive disorder, but doesn't tell you what's causing it or what to do for it. And so we end up with the single or simple treatments for illnesses that are complex.
0: Could you give us an example? And I, you have so many of them in your book. One of them that really resonated with me was a young man by the name of Andrew.
1: Well, that example always makes me cry. Um, so when I first started doing imaging, I got no end of grief from my colleagues. You shouldn't do that. That's not useful. You're just taking advantage of mentally ill people. I mean, it was like it was awful. And I have two flaws. I mean, I work on them. But one of them is I hate conflict. I just don't like it. I grew up with five sisters. And
0: <laughs> say no <I> more.
1: <laughs> just don't like it. And the other one is, I like it when people like me. And now all of a sudden, you know I've worked so hard to get into medical school and through my residency, and now I've all these people hating me, because I want to look at the brain. And so for about four years, it really unbalanced. Me. And then in April 1995, I got a call late one night from my sister-in-law who told me my nine-year-old nephew, who's was also my godson, Andrew, attacked a little girl on the baseball field for no particular reason. And I'm horrified. And I'm like, Sherry, what else is going on? And she said, Danny, he's different. He's mean. He doesn't smile anymore. I went into his room and found two pictures he had drawn. One of them he was hanging from a tree in a suicide attempt. God. The other picture he's shooting other children and there's blood all over the picture. And Andrew was Columbine or Sandy Hook or Parkland, Florida waiting to happen. And I'd already scanned, because I'm also a child psychiatrist, a number of violent kids. And I suspected he had problems in his left temporal lobe. So that's underneath your temple and behind your eyes on the left side. Because I'd correlated, as have other researchers, violence to that part of the brain. And I said, well, I want to see him tomorrow. And so they drove eight hours to see me. And and when I scanned him, he actually had a cyst the size of a golf ball occupying the space of his left temporal lobe. And when they took it out, his behavior immediately went back to normal. He's just about ready to have his first baby. And it was at that moment, Andrew's case, because I'm somebody I just loved dearly. It just showed me, stop caring what people think about you. This work is important. Because quite frankly, if you don't look, you don't know. And as a profession, we should stop lying about it. To think that you can make diagnoses based on symptom clusters with no biological information, that's insane. And uh, it doesn't win me a lot of friends, but we, you know, I mean, as you said, we built the world's largest database of brain scans related to behavior. We've seen people now from 155 countries, and it's, it's a new way of doing brain health the end of mental illness will begin with a revolution in brain health. And that's why I wrote this book, which is really to create the revolution we desperately need.
0: So something that you've written about many times, I don't think our young listeners are going to be aware of. And let me just share from personal experience to Help you make the point. I'm someone who struggled for years with depression, with anxiety, challenges at times with focus, and am currently taking medications. But not once, Dr. Eamon, has my prescribing psychiatrist ever asked me if I have had a traumatic brain injury, which I have had twice, nor has he asked me if. I was ever exposed to high levels of mercury, which I have been because I lived in China for a total of four years. Nor has he asked me if I've ever had Lyme disease, which I have had. How common am I?
1: You're what the average person. And I'm sure you've gotten great care, you know, just because you're smart and uh, you know how to get medical care. And it's horrifying to me that no one's looked at your brain, no one's really set out a plan to optimize it, and they're making diagnoses just based on symptom clusters, and we can do better. We can do better. Traumatic brain injury, mild traumatic brain injury, is a major cause of psychiatric problems, and nobody knows about it because psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, marriage and family counselors never look at the brain. And I trained in the Army at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center, and was after Vietnam, and so I would ask my patients, have you ever had a brain injury? But once they said no, I left it alone. When I started scanning people and I could see the evidence, I then found I had to have asked them 10 times. And then after the eighth or ninth time, they go, oh, well, I went through a windshield of a car when I was 16, (laughs) or I fell out of a moving vehicle going 30 miles an hour, or I fell out of a second story window. I mean, the stories are just stunning.
0: And what about all those who play soccer or football?
1: Your brain is soft about the consistency of soft butter. Your brain makes you who you are. It has 100 billion neurons and more connections than there are stars in the universe. But this soft brain that makes you who you are is housed in a skull that has sharp bony ridges. So allowing your child to hit a soccer ball with your head is just not smart. Or playing tackle football. I had the blessing to do our big NFL study starting in 2008 when the NFL was having trouble with the truth on the issue of concussion in football. And we scanned and treated 300 NFL players, high levels of damage in virtually all of them. But 80% of them get better when we put them on a rehabilitation program. So with your anxiety, depression, and focus issues, if they're subsequent to the concussions you've had, shouldn't we really have first worked to rehabilitate your brain rather than put you on this or that medication? that may or may not help. And I'm not opposed to medicine. I'm just opposed to the indiscriminate use of it based on symptom clusters with no biological data. When you talked about mercury, well, mercury is a known neurotoxin. And I worry about all of my patients who lived in China because the level of air pollution is so awful there that it damages your brain and actually increases your risk of dementia. And so, for you, you always want to be supporting the four organs of detoxification your kidneys, so, drink more water, your gut, eat more fiber sweat with exercise and saunas, and less alcohol to support your liver. Lyme disease is so interesting. If you take a map of the United States, and in the map of the United States, just imagine the highest level of schizophrenia, which is a very severe psychiatric disorder. And it clusters in the Northeast, the North Midwest, and the West Coast and then overlay the highest incidence of Lyme disease. They're virtually identical. So I think anybody with schizophrenia in those areas of the country should at least be screened for Lyme disease to see if it might not be possible And people with serious psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, on average, they die 10 years earlier than the general population. And virtually no psychiatrist, I mean, I don't know about yours, but no psychiatrist talks about optimizing brain health. In fact, all you have to do is go to a psychiatric facility and see the terrible food they feed the patients, and you go, oh, well, they don't really understand that the end of mental illness begins with a revolution in brain health, which
0: involves getting the right food. So let's talk about that, because one of the things that I think might, one of many things might surprise our young listeners, is that brain health doesn't stop at their shoulders. <laughs> in fact, it is tied directly to their gut through the vagus nerve. So- In the end of mental
1: illness, I talk about if you want to keep your brain healthy, or rescue it if it's headed to the dark place, you have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. And we know what they are. And I have a mnemonic called Bright Minds. And the B, for example, is blood flow, low blood flow. is the number one brain imaging predictor of Alzheimer's disease. The first I is inflammation which comes from the Latin word to set a fire. And one of the major causes of inflammation is this thing we call leaky gut syndrome, which is your gut is not healthy. And if your microbiome, those are the hundred trillion bugs in your gut that make neurotransmitters that detoxify your food, that digest your food, that help you in just so many ways, if they're not healthy, then there's a direct communication through the vagal nerve to your brain and can actually increase the incidence of anxiety, depression, brain fog, along with autoimmune disorders that can attack your brain. So getting mentally well really requires us to be physically healthy.
0: Yes. Let's talk about the bright mind's mnemonic that you have now begun down. You've gotten the B. The R is for retirement and aging, the importance of continuing to learn so that your brain doesn't atrophy. The I for inflammation. The G is for genetics, which I think many people attribute if they do have some kind of mental illness diagnosis, oftentimes they'll say, oh, it runs in the family. But you would say the genes are not a death sentence.
1: What they should be is a wake up call. I actually dedicated this book to my two nieces, Alizé and Amélie. They're loaded for mental illness. They have a family history of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, multiple suicides, depression, addiction, incarceration, almost anything you can think of. But we know genes only load the gun. It's what happens to us that pulls the trigger. And unfortunately for them, they were raised in chaos with parents who struggled with addiction, depression, domestic violence. The kids had multiple moves, multiple schools. And then about four years ago, they were taken by Child Protective Service into foster care where yet more traumas occurred. So we would agree these kids are at an extremely high risk for mental illness. The book is really my program to end it in them, in their babies and grandbabies. And Uh, with the program. They actually now live with us. They're happy. They're both a students. They're social. They're no longer addicted to hot Cheetos. And, you know, their future is just so much brighter. So we know they're vulnerable. That means we need to be more serious about putting brain healthy habits into their lives. The older one, for example, The younger one, who's 10 now, is a lark. So she's a morning person. So whenever I get up in the morning, she's always there waiting and just a joy to sort of have in my space. The older one, she doesn't really get up till late 30 or 9. And in traditional school, that would hurt her. But the S in bright minds is sleep. And we discriminate against night owls as a society because... You know, we expect everybody to get on the same schedule when certain people, they're just wired differently. And if we allow her to sleep until she's nine and now during a pandemic, everybody's doing their schoolwork online, she just thrives and is a top student. Get her up at six o'clock to take an early class or even to be to an eight o'clock school on time, she would really struggle more with brain fog.
0: So you think we should really be listening to our bodies and do to the best of our abilities, try to adapt our schedules so that we can be at our best in terms of our mental alertness?
1: I do. And I think as a society, we discriminate against night owls. And and that's just not fair when we know from a neuroscience standpoint, sleep is critical and not everybody is the same. And so individualizing treatment plans and even work schedules and school schedules just makes the most sense from a neuroscience standpoint.
0: Dr. Amen, you began our conversation this afternoon by predicting that we are on the cusp of another pandemic, a mental health pandemic due to not just the coronavirus, but the way that we are responding to the coronavirus going back years and years. And that has to do with both the lack of sleep, but also the way that we are feeding ourselves. Could you talk to our young listeners about what you've seen in your practice about the connection between not just being overweight, but the junk food that young people are eating and what it's doing to their brains.
1: So almost all of the 11 risk factors, except maybe head trauma, there's some association with food that the eye, the inflammation, if you eat processed foods that are high In simple carbohydrates, uh, especially corn and corn syrup and sugar, those are pro-inflammatory and they increase inflammation, not to mention sort of the poison that's also involved in processed food. I get very concerned about that. In addition, they also raise your blood sugar. 50% of the population is diabetic or pre-diabetic, and it's because of the high sugar diets we have, along with the high glycemic diet. So if you haven't heard of the glycemic index, it's basically how quickly does this food turn to sugar in my body? And foods like bread, pasta, potatoes, rice, and sugar are all very high in their glycemic index and puts you at a higher risk of diabetes and obesity because they're not satiating foods. They'll push your insulin response up, which it'll see the high sugar level. Your body will produce insulin, which will then go up and then down. And when it goes down an hour later, two hours later, you get hungry and you eat more with those foods as opposed to if you're eating healthy fat and protein, those are satiating foods, but. Andrea, I published two studies, and I'm about to publish two more, that show as your weight goes up, the actual physical size and function of the brain goes down, and that should scare the fat off anyone. In a society where obesity and being overweight is at epidemic proportions, and it's not going down, it just continues to go up that we should be very concerned that this is the biggest brain drain in the history of civilization.
0: Wow. That is quite a statement. For our young listeners who, like their parents, like their grandparents and their friends, are sheltering at home right now, some of them may have just graduated who are understandably incredibly stressed and anxious about their futures whether it be in the job market whether it be socially what advice do you have for them
1: well we live in a historic time and it's historic stress and historic opportunity and i remember the day the pandemic started for me this book came out march 3rd and I went on a book tour, and I have a new public television special called Change Your Brain, Heal Your Mind. I was in Tampa Bay and Atlanta, and the first cases started happening then. So America's really beginning to pay attention to the pandemic. And then I was on the Mel Robbins show, nationally syndicated television show, where the host, Mel Robbins, actually came to our Manhattan clinic, got scanned, and the whole show was going to be about my work. And I was really excited. I'm in my bathroom in California getting ready to go to the airport. Now it's March 10th. And I get a call from the producer saying, close the studio and that they weren't going to do my show. And I was disappointed. But part of me was really glad I didn't have to get on a metal tube, the plane with COVID-19 and go to the epicenter of this bad guy. And that night I wrote, mental hygiene is just as important as washing your hands. We need to disinfect our thoughts. We need to kill the ants, the automatic negative thoughts that steal our happiness. And from that moment on, I've been talking, I've been on Facebook Live virtually every night with my group talking about mental hygiene and how to keep your brain and your mind healthy. And I've seen it go both ways. I've seen a significant rise in the people who call aim in clinics. I have eight clinics around the country, and we've been open the whole time for panic attacks and suicide. But Among a significant number of our patients, I've also seen significant healing, that families have more time together. 80% of parents now feel closer to their children than before they did before the pandemic. They have more time and quite frankly, bonding requires two things, time and a willingness to listen. And for three generations, families haven't had time because people are just working and running so fast. The world is going to be disrupted, both with work, the economy is going to come back, but are you going to be ready for the new economy, which is conversations like you and I have are having? These are going to replace a lot of in-person events because people are, for good reason, concerned about passing germs that don't need to be passed. I also predict our flu season is gonna be better this year because how does the flu season get worse? People shake hands, they hug, they are in each other's space without thinking and... You know, I've done a lot of book signings and I'm sort of glad that, you know, everybody's not coming up to me, and hugging me and shaking my hands just after I washed my hands. I'm sort of glad we're beginning to think as a microbiologist might think, you know, how do we not spread these germs that can hurt us?
0: The idea of mental hygiene is so important. You can learn more about those best practices in Dr. Eamon's new book, The End of Mental Illness. I hope you buy it and read it and take it in because the best way for you to build and realize your dreams is for you to be at the top of your game. Dr. Eamon, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community, even if you don't drink coffee. Thank you so much for what you are doing to try to erase the stigma of mental illness and ultimately to end mental illness. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you